migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talk Immigration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. Italy is one of the key destinations for migrants coming to Europe, with many coming by boat from Libya. Now Italy is threatening to close its ports to stem the inflow of migrants and refugees. Italy wants more support from the rest of the EU, and EU ministers met earlier this month to discuss. But what would it actually mean for Italy to close its ports? Are these threats a result of um, a country becoming overwhelmed, or is it mainly a change of politics? And what is the role of NGOs operating search and rescue missions to save people's lives at sea? With me to answer these questions and more is Simon McMahon, who is a research fellow at the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University, and who has been on the podcast in the previous episode talking about his research on migration in Italy. I asked Simon to start by giving a brief overview of the current situation and explain why Italy is threatening to close its ports now. Okay, so the situation now in Italy and with migration along the central Mediterranean route is, um, in terms of migration, it's not particularly changed over the last four or so years. So um, the numbers of people taking that route every year have gone up slightly. So 2017, this year, end of June, there was around 83,000 people that made the journey. And back in 2014, only 61,000 people had by this time. So that's quite a big increase. But year on year, the numbers aren't changing that much. What it does mean, though, is that you get these press reports saying that there is a dramatic increase and it's a record number of migrants coming across that part of the sea and so on. But in the detail, what you see is is a pattern of more arrivals during the summer, less during the winter and more or less similar numbers uh, throughout the year. So I doubt that this year there will be more than 200,000 people. It might be a record compared to last year, but it won't be vastly greater and it certainly won't be anywhere near what was seen in the eastern Mediterranean in 2015. So in terms of the migration crisis as a movement of people, um, it's not really changed very much at all. Um, what has changed has been the political context in Italy. Um, slightly and um, attempts by the government to look like they're a bit tougher um, and we can talk a bit about that in a moment and also there's a sense that um, that there are too many people in Italy who can't leave the country so lots of people who moved there never intended to move to Italy in the first place they intended to move to other countries in Europe uh, so we had this agreement for there to be a relocation of people from Italy, people who apply for asylum and are likely to get it, 75% chance uh, um, acceptance rate for people of their country, and they would be able to move to other EU countries. Um, and that relocation hasn't happened. Asylum system in Italy is incredibly slow. So you get loads of people who feel like they're stuck and the local population looks at them and says, well, why are they still here? Why do all these people come here when they don't want to be here? Uh, and the Italian government has kind of run out of ways to, to deal with it. And their way was to try and say, well, we won't let people in the ports anymore. Yeah, cause so, I, well, I suppose, you know, you said it doesn't change so much. Um, the numbers um, haven't changed so much um, from year to year. But I suppose there's kind of an accumulative effect. Um, and if they're slower processing, um, eventually... They'll, they'll be overwhelmed, I suppose. Um, 
I wouldn't necessarily use the word overwhelmed, but yeah, there is a cumulative effect that you have people coming every year and it takes a long time to get documents in, in Italy. So you do have an increase in people and Italy, they've had an expansion of their reception system. I, I've read somewhere, I think it's estimated about 170,000 people are in their reception system at the moment in Italy. So the numbers are quite big, but the Italian government has always tried to establish these emergency reception facilities so that are temporary that they know they can close um, or that they can change when they need to and also they've tried to um, reduce the amount of temporary protection visas that are given over the last couple of years as well so humanitarian protection and subsidiary protection which are different types of, of status that people can get which are temporary um, they've given them in like in increasing figures, so in decreasing figures over the last couple of years. And this kind of suggests that the, the Italian government doesn't necessarily believe that people have a valid claim to, to remain in the country. The, the re refugee figure acceptance rate has stayed about the same. So what they've tried to do is just make sure that people aren't necessarily integrating, aren't necessarily wanting to stay and not really manage the situation particularly well. And that it has become a kind of a tinderbox for, for public opinion, yeah. But whether the country is overwhelmed by the number of people arriving, I'm not so sure. Whether the country is willing to actually change the way so that it can integrate people properly, or whether the European Union wants to actually make sure that they relocate sufficient numbers of people so that there is a, a safety valve, an escape route, then um, that's not going to happen either, I don't think. So that's where the tension is really coming. Yeah, so that was something else I was going to ask, is what helped to actually get in from the rest of the EU? So there's support for the missions in, at sea, so there's the Frontex mission, there's Joint Operation Sophia, um, and other EU member states send resources out into the sea to contribute to those. Um, and then there's this relocation programme that I mentioned, so 70 people from countries with a 75% acceptance rate, um, who so they're considered to be likely to give an refugee status, they go into this relocation program. But there was meant to be um, 160,000 people relocated from Italy and Greece over a two-year period from September 2015, I think it was. And so far, about 7,500 people have been relocated from Italy. So it's, it's a great big failure in mm. terms of relocating people. And when you have 170, 180,000 people arriving a year and only 7,000 are able to leave through a formal channel, yeah, it doesn't do anything at all to to release the pressure that the Italian system is under to deal with it. Yeah. And could they actually close the ports like they're threatening, like if they wanted to? I don't understand what that would actually sort of mean in practice. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm not sure many people have thought about how <laughs> to actually achieve it in practice. Um, so it was a threat that was made. It was saying that if, if the rest of Europe doesn't step up and help us, then we will close the borders, refugee ships won't be allowed in anymore. And this is kind of a similar kind of pattern that we've seen over several years, not necessarily the closing of the ports, but the, the saying if the rest of Europe doesn't step up and help us, then we'll do something dramatic. Um, so it's kind of an Italian strategy. And it doesn't often get much kind of support from other EU member states. Um, whether they would actually be able to stop rescue boats from entering into their ports is is highly unlikely, um, because it's it's against um, many of the international laws of the sea. Um, so people have to be 
rescued if they're in distress and um, and taken to the first safe port of call, and that's managed by the migrant um, by the Maritime Coordination Centre in Rome. So when a rescue ship rescues people, they're sent by the centre in Rome, and then the centre in Rome tells them where your nearest safe port where you can disembark is this one. Um, they can't disembark in North Africa because it's not considered to be safe places. They can't disembark in Libya because it's not considered to be a safe port of call. Um, so they come back to to the to the Italian ones. So not letting ships that have rescued people at sea disembark in the first safe port that's designated to them would be against the the laws of the the sea. And the Italian government have tried to block ships in the past. So in the early 1990s, a ship came across from Albania to um, to Bari in Puglia, and um, and there was initially a blockade to say this ship with thousands of Albanian migrants, this ship won't be allowed in. But the humanitarian situation on the ship, because the ship was falling to pieces at sea, mm. was so great that they just forced their way in, and in the end they got in and they disembarked. In 2004 as well, there was a rescue boat of this, um, I think it's a German NGO, they rescued some people in the Mediterranean and they took them to an Italian port and it was the, their boat and their organisation was called the Cap Anamur uh, and there was a standoff, they weren't allowed to disembark at first um, and they were saying no because you're you're illegally migrating these people into Italian territory and so on and you haven't brought them to the first safe port of call and whatever, they just waited outside until they said the situation had got so bad on the ship uh, the psychological and, and health issues were, were coming up and they had to disembark by for humanitarian reasons. And they were allowed in in the end. So it seems to be that by closing the ports to rescue ships, all that the Italian government would be doing would be causing a dangerous standoff that would put people's lives and safety at risk, only to then be allowed to disembark under humanitarian reasons anyway. So it's a bit pointless from a practical point of view. It's unlikely to actually be able to be done. I, suppose, I think I heard some uh, official from Italy arguing that, well, two things. One was that the rescue boats are picking um, migrants up closer and closer to Libya. Um, so their case was sort true. of... Sorry? That's true as well. And I don't think the rescue boats um, deny that. There's So there's all these programs on online. You can, you can track where ships are at sea and all the Twitter accounts of the the NGOs as well, they they show where they are at sea, they say we've done a rescue here, and they like put maps of their routes and so on. So it's very easy to see where they're doing their rescues. Um, and yeah, periodically over the last three years, they've got closer and closer to Libyan waters, and some of the rescues have taken place in Libyan waters, but it's always been coordinated by the, the centre in, in Rome. Right. In what, in what way? So they say that they, they have a distress call and these are the boats nearby and these are the boats that are allowed to go and get them and they coordinate who is in the vicinity and who's able to carry out the rescue that way. Okay. Um, and, I, and I think their other argument was that actually they're not always the closest port, a safe port. Um, this is me, I, I, being, I'm, I'm terrible at geography, so I'm probably... Um, um, yeah, so I don't know actually who would be closer... But I should probably just so look at one of. Would you look at a map? No, one of the yeah. accusations is that the Maltese yeah. take people because Malta is closer to where some of the rescues take place. Um, <clears throat> but to be honest, 
there's also a practical dimension to that, which is Malta is a pretty tiny island, and um, and if you were to have so many people arriving just on on the island of Malta, then there there would be a humanitarian issue because they don't have the the systems in place to to look after those people. So the search for a, a first safe port of call is also part of this broader coordination of where people are rescued and where they they're taken to afterwards. So the coordination centre in Rome determines which is the first safe port of call. So they might not go to the port of Lampedusa, which might be closer. They might mm. go to Sicily, they might go to Puglia, they might go to other ports in Italy. But that's because that's where they determine that there are enough facilities and services so that they can do a safe disembarkation there as well. Right, okay. Because it used to be the case that more migrants came to Malta, wasn't it? It was. Um, and there's... There's discussions around whether there were agreements between the Maltese and the Italian government and trade-offs about saying, well, we won't take so many migrants, but we'll do other things for you. But I'm not too sure of the details of of what those agreements were. Right. Oh, that's interesting, though. Um, but um, so, so obviously there seems to be this, there's this big um, sort of arguments going on between the Italian government and the NGOs that do the search and rescue um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us uh, firstly what there is something that the Italians want to um, put in place a sort of code of conduct um, for the search and rescues um, and then secondly if you could say something about the evidence of the sort of pull factors that there are claimed to be um, for, from these uh, rescue boats. Okay. So they're, they're two quite different things. The, yeah. the thing about whether rescue at sea is a pull factor is a real kind of hot potato and is a real point of contention in Italy and in the rest of Europe. I mean, in, in 2014, when um, the, there was all the pressure to reduce or to remove the rescue operations in the Mediterranean, and there was a lot of pressure in Britain as well. They were saying we shouldn't contribute to rescuing people in the Mediterranean. And it was because they thought that rescues were a, a pull factor. What we saw was they stopped the rescues at sea, and April 2015 was the month of the highest deaths at sea that had been recorded so far. And so whether or not migration was a pull factor, we saw there that not having rescues at sea drastically increased the number of people who died at sea. Mm. What that suggests is that people were not moving because of the chance of being rescued. They were moving because they were trying to get away from something. And if the journey still gets more dangerous, they're still going to try and make it. Um, at the moment, the latest kind of politicization of search and rescue at sea has been um, driven in part by um, Frontex and in part by Italian politicians as well. And it links in with the idea that Um, with the criminalization of support for, for migrants in Italy as well. So there's been an increasing kind of anger among right-wing politicians in particular in Italy around um, the involvement of organized crime in reception centers, and that was demonstrated in 2014, 2015. There was a big investigation. Uh, and the accusations that some of the NGOs are actually colluding with um, With the smugglers, so they're having direct phone calls, and that they're um, they're organising the journey themselves, and they don't know where their resources or their money are coming from. So, um, so they accuse them of working with the smugglers in order to to make the journey. Um, 
these accusations, there's the nugget of truth, which is that there has been an involvement of organised crime in migrant smuggling and migrant reception. Um, but the accusations of NGOs have not been supported by any real particularly strong evidence. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so the prosecutor in Catania in Sicily that said that he had strong evidence that um, migrant boats were, uh, that rescue boats were colluding with smugglers and then he, he didn't open his uh, prosecution because he didn't have the right sort of evidence that would enable him to make a prosecution. So it seems strange that you would make a public announcement when you know you don't have sufficient evidence to do a judicial case. Mm. Um, similarly, the, 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 I can't remember, Luigi Di Maio, who's a very prominent politician in the Movimento Cinque Stelle, the Five Star Movement, which is this populist movement uh, that there is in Italy now, he repeated all these claims that there was a taxi service in the Mediterranean and he would reference back to Frontex reports which did not say that there had been a taxi service or collusion uh, and then other newspapers such as the Financial Times published apologies and retractions saying Frontex did not use such language but you know the politician had already put it out there people were already considering it to be true and and the snowball kept on rolling so it's kind of a longer process of criminalization of support for migrants in various forms and trying to undermine it. Uh, and being told that we should close the ports to migrants is just another part of saying that uh, not only that search and rescue is a pull factor, but, but that people doing search and rescue are actively working with uh, the migrant smugglers. But there's not enough strong evidence to actually be able to say that. Mm. So, so what's this code of conduct then that they want to uh, uh, implement? So the code of conduct is kind of the the, the EU's trade-off with Italy. So when Italy said we're going to close the ports, there was this 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 statement came out. I think the day after. I think it was a, Fran a Franco-German statement, and it basically said that we will not do anything new from what we're doing now. So we'll keep um, strengthening the Libyan coast guard to do their to do interceptions at sea. We'll keep. Uh, working with third countries on, on transit routes to stop people getting into Libya. And then one of the new things was we will support Italy to create a code of conduct for um, NGOs involved in rescues at sea. In part, this is a bit uh, just repeating what already exists because the NGOs involved at sea already had their own voluntary code of conduct. So it said, how do we operate together at sea in the safest way for us and for the people we're rescuing? Uh, and there's already international law which says how people at sea involved in rescue should should act and what should happen to people who are rescued. The code of conduct then just actually seems to be not so much something around making rescue safer or better, but just a way of adding increasing security onto the rescue boats. So they want to be able to have members of the police or the border force on the NGO rescue boats they want to have no more transfers of rescue of rescued migrants between boats at sea um, because that happens quite a lot. They and and why, why is that a problem? So because some of the rescue boats are not particularly big. Um, so if you are in a part of the sea where there's perhaps 10 dinghies each with 100 people on it and you have capacity for only a few hundred people, um, you're going to get full up very quickly. So one way that you can stay in the rescue area without having to do a journey of a few days back to Italy and then a few days 
back to the rescue zone is to do a transfer onto a bigger boat and then the bigger boat takes more people back to Italy in one go. It's kind of um, rationalising the resources mm. you've available at sea. Um, the suspicion is that when you transfer people at, at sea, I don't know what the suspicion is really. Maybe the suspicion is that you're involved in making the journey easier or that you lose track of who is. I don't know what the assumption is, but they don't want them to do it anymore. Right. Okay. Uh, they don't want them to have operations in international waters anymore, which is because they want the Libyan, uh, in Libyan waters, I mean, because they want the Libyan Coast Guard to work there. Um, and they want, they don't want the rescue boats to use lights to signal to smugglers where they are or to make phone calls with smugglers uh, when the journey is taking place or before they disembark from, from Libya. They sound like sensible things, but to be honest, the phone calls is something that has always happened. Um, so migrants, from our research, we interviewed lots of people who crossed the, the central Mediterranean, over 200 people, yeah. and lots of them did talk about having a phone on the boat, and they were told, when you've been going for a certain amount of hours, call this person, and they call, there's a, there's a well-known priest in Italy, or they call the Coast Guard, or they call a rescue boat, and that's been quite well-known for a few years. So. The fact of a phone call isn't particularly new, but they don't want those phone calls to take place, um, and they don't want lights to be shone, and these things are just going to make the journey more dangerous. So mm. you expect there to be an increase in, in deaths at sea before you'd see any effect on the um, on the number of people trying to make the journey. But, I mean, what sort of status would this code of conduct, conduct have? Would it be, you know, would they be actually legally bound by it, or, or could they just, you know, ignore it? I assume the Italian, because it's not been finalised yet, yeah. um, I assume the Italians would make operations at sea conditional on like, cohering to the, the code of conduct, so saying you have to follow it. And I'm not sure if it would become a, a legal document, but they might well say, if you don't follow the code of conduct, then we will not allow you to to disembark in Italy or to right, um, okay. restock yeah. your supply in Italy or, or so on. Yeah, I mean, what the, the real sticking point as well for many of them will be the the, the presence of police officers on a rescue boat because uh -huh. um, it stops becoming a humanitarian mission as soon as you have uh, a security agent on board. The, the idea is of a humanitarian mission is that you rescue all people regardless of their legal status or of the legality of the journey that they're making. Mm. So people are in need and you respond to what their need is at that time. It's up to the Italian government when they land in Italy to decide whether what they're doing is legal or whether they can stay or whatever. Having a policeman on the boat would introduce that consideration of legality of the journey that they're making and a consideration of who should be allowed to be rescued and who's more deserving to be considered a refugee who can be taken or who should be pushed back. And it would completely change the underlining um, kind of the 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 moral of principles of the rescue operation itself. It would make it a security operation rather than a humanitarian one. So I, I suppose their rationale, the, Itali the Italian government's rationale for that would be that perhaps fewer people would make the journey if, I mean, I don't know if that's any, if that's actually the case, but that might be how they reason. If they thought, you know, if they didn't have, uh, if they didn't have grounds for refugee status uh, and they knew there would be a police officer there. I don't know if that's. Perhaps I don't it. think so because I think I think the risk of, of kind of being shot or put into slavery or um, 
beaten or whatever in Libya is still going to be much stronger than the fear of meeting an Italian policeman on a boat. Um, I think I suspect what the Italians would use, would use it for as well as trying to keep an eye on NGOs and to try and be able to say to their public back home that they have some sort of control over what happens at sea. I think they would probably use it to increase the number of arrests of assumed smugglers. Right, yeah. Um, because the at the moment they don't manage to arrest as many as they would like to and there's not enough prosecutions in the end of the people that do get arrested. But it's very difficult because the, the it's very difficult to get enough information about who is the the smuggler. Many of the people driving the boats are not involved in the smuggling. Many of them are just the people who, you know, mm. the smuggler gets off and goes back to Libya and they have to just keep keep driving it. They might be people who've been given a, a cheaper journey um, or they might be people who some something happened to the person who was driving. I've met a couple of people who had this situation. So the driver passes out, someone else grabs the, the motor and keeps it going uh, and when they land they get arrested for being the smuggler because the others on the boat point the finger and say, that's you. There's right. also that in, in Italy, if you are a witness and you say who the smuggler was, mm. you get fast-tracked into a witness protection scheme, you'll, you get promised that you're going to have certain documents granted to you and you're going to get favourable treatment. Mm. And that leads people to want to point the finger at others when you can't be 100% sure if they're doing it because they know who the smuggler was or if it's because they want to get these special documents. And I, I've already heard from people I know in Sicily that some groups arrive and they already know that when you meet a police officer, if you say you know who the smuggler is, you'll get favourable treatment. Mm. So it's very difficult to make those those um, those cases with with strong evidence. Yeah. Um. Maybe just um, a last question that I meant to ask you earlier on, really, um, which we kind of come on to now, is just this question with the, the big question, really, of of who it is who's coming to Italy. Um, and I know only this this week there was an article about it in the Economist, which I haven't got in front of me now. But they were looking at sort of who uh, who is coming, and I think there was the second largest group was uh, people from Pakistan, for example. Um, sorry, oh Bangladesh. Sorry, Bangladesh. Um, and they were suggesting it had something to do with. Uh, uh, with that it was easier last year to get refugee status if you were from there or something like that so um but of course there's a lot of debate within europe about uh, you know whether people are refugees or uh, economic migrants even though that's a very simplified um distinction um but but you know has it has it changed uh, at all who's come in uh, recently and could you say anything about that so the the, if you look at the, the figures for the largest nationality group over the last four years, it would look like it's been dramatically changing every year. So 2014, the biggest group was people from Syria. 2015, the biggest group was people from Eritrea. 2016, the biggest group was people from Nigeria. Mm. And just that headline, you go, oh, it's dramatically changing every year. But in reality, the variations in the figures are not incredibly dramatic and the overall pattern continues to be one of a highly varied population of people making the crossing from Libya to towards Europe. Um, so there's, there's lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different countries and there's, there's not really any particular nationality that stands out 
above all the others. So if you think back to 2015 and what was happening in Greece, three nationality groups made up 90% of all of the people who were arriving. In Italy at the moment, the biggest nationality group makes up 15% of all the right. people who are... So there's an incredible variety. Um, and if you have... Oh, and the other, the other reason why it's difficult to say whether the, the composition of the flow across the, the sea responds to policy initiatives is because um, lots of the people who've been on, the, on those journeys have been traveling for a very long time. So for our research, we found that people have been traveling often for 18 months or, or a couple of years. And we interviewed quite a few people from Bangladesh who'd been in Libya, and they'd lived in Libya for a few years. Um, they, they would go with, um, with travel agents, organize journeys from Bangladesh. They'd enter quite often into debt bondage in Libya, uh, work for a few years to try and pay that off, uh, and when their life gets too much in risk because of the violence, the situation, no, they say, no, I have to leave. So if you're moving for 18 months, saying what happened six months ago in a policy context in Europe, yeah. it, it's very difficult to draw a connection between that and what's happening in the place of origin or what's happening in, in Libya. So the timescales are potentially much, much longer for there to be any sort of real impact. Mm. And, um, and also that there are... The article you spoke about was drawing this distinction between there being refugees, who are, the article mentioned people from Syria, yeah, um, and then there are economic migrants. So if you're not a refugee from Syria, then you're an economic migrant. You're moving just to get a job. And that's not strictly true. Um, firstly, it's not true because there are various other types of um, legal status that you can have. So you can have humanitarian protection or you can have subsidiary protection. And secondly, it's not the case because um, people who are getting on the boats in Libya are moving quite often because of what's happened to them in Libya, not what happened to them in their place of origin. So even if they left Bangladesh or whatever country to look for a job at first, by the time they get to go on a boat, they are normally looking for safety. Mm. So they're not a refugee, but they're not moving, they're not arriving in Europe just to get a job. They're arriving in Europe because it's a safe place for them to come to. The thing so, I mentioned earlier about there being a reduction in the number of people getting humanitarian protection or subsidiary protection, it makes this even more difficult because people who would be deserving of a type of humanitarian protection because Italy is a safe place for them are, are not getting it because they're being considered either a refugee or an economic migrant. Yeah, so the people who, uh, I mean, I know it must be difficult to sort of generalise, but the people who make that journey... Um, would you say that Europe wasn't necessarily their sort of first choice of destination, that that was sort of something that came about during their, um, during their journey? Um, from our research we did in 2015, we know that about a third of the people that we interviewed in Italy had originally intended to go to Italy or Europe. And when they said Europe, they normally just said thought of Europe as this kind of general place of, of peace and safety. They hadn't thought of a particular country. But mm. about a third, when they left their place of origin, said, oh, I wanted to go to Europe or I wanted to go to Italy. Um, about a third also were just saying, I went to a country nearby or to... Um, or just I wanted to go anywhere. And this was quite often people from West Africa in particular, 
so they go from Gambia to Senegal or to Mauritania, and they uh, just say, I just wanted to go anywhere, and I had to leave at short notice. Mm. And then a third of the people as well wanted to go to Libya. So Libya continues to be a destination for many people because there's been decades of labour migration to Libya. People have considered it to be a place they can go to, and they, they have networks of people there. They think that they will help them to find a place to live, find a place to to work and there's a lot of misinformation from smugglers as well saying I can get you to Libya and then they're taken into slavery and so on. So not many of the people were originally when they left their home actually considering to come to directly to Europe and it's a decision that's made along the way and their plans change as they go to various places. They stop in a place and they see what they can do and then they move on um, and by the time they get to northern Libya in particular where there's the cities along the coast um, they've been through so much and they just feel like they can't go back towards the south. They don't know what the route is, um, they don't know if they uh, would be safe to do it, um, and they think that taking the boat would be safer than trying to go back. I mean, people do go back and people do get flights back with IOM from Libya as well, but um, the numbers are still pretty small for that and it's not making much of an impact on the general pattern. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, maybe just to finish off, what do you think? Um, you know, what do you think will happen now with this uh, port um, sort of debates and uh, and and the, and the, I mean, it's very difficult to say. But what do you think? You know, the next is this going to sort of die down a little bit, or um, are they going to continue um, threatening until they get some more support from the EU? They they. So there were suggestions that they might broaden the number of ports that are involved in the, the disembarkation of, of migrants, so they might be able to take them to French ports. Um, the French government doesn't seem particularly receptive to that idea at the moment, and then Spanish ports are, are a very, very long way away from where search and rescue is actually happening. So it could rumble on, and they could still try and, and negotiate kind of access to ports from other countries. Um, and that might happen. I'm not 100% sure of of the direction that will go in. And um, but in Italy, I'm pretty sure that this will continue to be a, a major factor. Um, partly because we're, they're due to have elections in Italy next year. In recent local elections, the governing party uh, didn't do as well as expected they were going to do, which is why they've taken this harder line on on migration. They've adopted quite explicitly the terminology that the far right have always used in Italy around helping people in their own homeland instead of bringing them to, to Italy. Um, and the, the far right social movements as well, like this one called um, Generazione Identitaria, which is um, they're friends with uh, certain British, they call her a journalist from uh, the Daily Mail, and <laughs> they're this group of young activists from across Europe who have all got together and they've done a fundraising thing to try and have a boat that will stop um, migrant rescues from happening at sea. And in the past, they've already tried to do their own blockade of, of rescue boats in Italian ports as well. And and all of this discussion that's happening around the criminalization of support for, for migrants is really legitimizing the quite awful views that some of these people have uh, around just wanting people to die at sea instead of instead of being able to you know give them a chance at, at living so this is obviously going to keep rumbling on um because of the political context in italy at the moment to find out more about simon mcmahon and his research on migration in italy please visit our website talkingmigration.com where you can also listen to previous episodes 
If you want to hear Simon McMahon talk more about the migration situation at Italy's border, tune into episode 6 on iTunes or the archive on the website. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.